poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show is WSOP bracelet winner, tournament wizard, and founder of Learn Pro Poker, Ryan LaPlante. Ryan's a man who has truly worked his way up from the micro stakes to crushing it at the highest levels of tournament poker, both online and live, with career tournament earnings of close to $5 million. Today, Ryan and I are going to dive into what's new and exciting in the world of poker. Here's a hint. It involves being able to look your opponent directly in the eye after you crush their dreams because live poker is coming back. Some greatness bombs in today's show with Ryan LaPlante include what kinds of physical tells Ryan looks for when trying to read his opponent's soul, why belly flopping after making an unconventional decision is actually a good thing, how to better deal with making a perfect read and getting an imperfect result, and much, much more. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you a top flight poker coach, dedicated teacher, and a crusher nobody wants to see sit down at their table, the founder of LearnProPoker.com, Ryan LaPlante. Mr. LaPlante, welcome back to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How you been? Thanks for having me. Uh, I've been busy, doing good, though. Um, really happy that things are starting to be kind of back to normal, So, and really, really looking forward to the you know, this year's live grind is going to be amazing. And you mentioned back to normal. You're in Vegas, correct? So Vegas has been uh, (laughs) like everywhere else over the past year. It hasn't really been the Mecca for live poker, right? No, definitely not. Honestly, like when COVID and everything first happened and the strip was shut down for the first time and it was empty. It was just one of the most surreal experiences driving down the strip with everything closed. I've never experienced anything like that. So, so weird. And to go from that to, um, so I'd, uh, we'd gone down to Florida somewhat recently for vacation. And right before that, um, it would have been like mid to end of April. I, I was playing some stuff on the strip and I've never seen the strip that busy that time of the year ever and things weren't even fully open then. it was like 60 percent capacity and i've never seen the strip like that ever and now things are fully open and apparently it's even more ridiculous sometimes so yeah vegas is back and it's great to see yeah the people have been you know chopping at the bit just ready to get out there and just be social with other yeah. human beings you know i think it's uh-huh. something that like after experiencing covid you know this is going to be a thing that like is in the history books and is talked about for a long time afterward. And I think the people that live through it, the one takeaway is how grateful we ought to be for just being able to congregate, for just being yeah. able to go out to dinner with family and friends whenever we want to or see a movie. Like, yeah. I, I, I can't even remember the last time I like I, we went to the movie theater to see a movie. It's been so long. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, and and honestly, the thing is as well is that people just have a lot of steam they want to let off, and people also just want to experience being out and about and doing things. And since international travel still really isn't a thing, where are they going to go for this experience? Yeah, they're going to go to the beaches and they're going to go to Vegas. I mean, yep. those are the most fun places to go. Um, with that said, a year has passed, uh, mm-hmm. quite, a, quite a bit of time since your first episode on CPG. So we'll start by asking you what you've been up to since the first time you came on the podcast. So since then, of course, there was the online WSOP and all that type of grind. Um, and just online grind and everything in general, but really has also been just a lot of LPP work. Um, I, I want to say that after that podcast is when I launched um, these videos that I made with Michael Acevedo, um, all post-flop in-depth theory videos uh, built using his Dream Machine. And honestly, to me, it was some of the most in-depth and complex stuff I've ever made. But on top of that, I think it's some of the best structured, well-built post-flop content online for tournaments and honestly making it really, really helped out my game. That being said, my online grind didn't really go the best um, and largely my fault for just like, you know, during COVID, I actually just wanted to kind of relax and take time off as much as I reasonably could. So usually I would just work on site stuff, work on like Range Trainer Pro stuff and then online grind on like Sundays. And then I would play like the online circuit events that they'd been doing. Um, and of course, bracelet events and stuff. So mostly I just took it really easy, but I got my first dose of Pfizer like end of February, early March and got second dose um, early April. And um, right before I got my first dose, I played a tiny bit live, but you know, didn't really feel the safest doing it. After I got first dose, a couple of weeks later, I actually started playing some live occasionally. And then after second dose, you know, there's been some series and stuff. So it's been great to really get back playing live again. And I've just like missed that so much. And looking at the live schedule coming up this year in Las Vegas, it's going to be the busiest, biggest year ever. And so the last couple months, and especially this month in particular, it's going to be a really heavy grind of revamping some site content. And then really helping get Range Trainer Pro up and running as well, fully for post-flop, which uh, has been a lot of work, to say the least. Yes, to say the least. Again, another thing that's just uh, this Herculean task, getting a post-flop simulator um, up and running. It's just, uh, it's a lot. It's something that I'm actually working on with my products, but on a lower scale, Mm -hmm. that'll just be like basically training my specific material instead of Mm -hmm. training uh, every single type flop texture with right. you know just all all the data points and all the variables all the complexity yeah. that's uh yeah it makes me shrivel up a little just yeah. thinking about it um but okay so wh- i do find one thing funny though that mm-hmm. like there's all this pent up um just need want desire to be playing the live tournaments and a common thing that i saw on twitter over the past year throughout the pandemic was like, oh, there's too many poker tournaments. We're going to break the field. Everybody's going to go bust. The Rex are not going to have enough money to play. And now here we are a year later. And I would have to imagine that like live WSOP this year is likely to break some records. Oh yeah. Likely to be massive demand. And just kind of like all the chicken littles out there that always proclaim that like the sky is falling and everybody's going to go broke and poker is going to disappear. 
it's funny, it's predictable, but thus far has not happened. And yeah, it's it, it's just a, a funny thing that I noticed. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that there is some worry, of course, in like there being all these different things and they're all multi-flight re-entries and they're all yada, yada, yada. And like, yeah, that's a bit of a concern, but I think people just miss gauge how big the poker scene actually is like how much money there is out there in the community and on top of that just how big the demand is in general um i would say that was especially true pre-covid that everyone was always worried about you know people you know about like the essentially everyone firing too many entries and there not being enough money in the circulation and that type of stuff and it's just it's just not the case not at all i mean even if you look at the amount of stuff that Vegas was doing like pre-COVID, there really wasn't a break in the schedule. You'd get like a three-week break after WSOP, but there was pretty much always a series running. The longest break besides for that was like a week and a half. There's pretty much always 400s to 1100s running and then some occasional bigger stuff. And this year is going even bigger. And I think this year will really show as well that there just is a lot of demand to play and that the you know that if you build it people will play it and will come i mean look at the win you know 10k 10 mil that they're doing like that thing's gonna get like 2,000 entries it's gonna be a 20 million dollar prize pool in a 10k and the only times you see that are i don't even think blagio five diamond hits that i think maybe blagio gets close it's just like the 10k main and nothing else and this this year as well for the 10k main it'll probably be the largest one ever and it's like, I, I really think that the next handful of years for just poker in general are going to be like that in the US for live and online. I mean, especially with more sites really opening online regulation. It's also in part why we've been making such a hard push with uh, launching Range Trainer Post and all the work we're putting into LPP right now is because I think the next handful of years for poker in the US is going to be the best ever. Yeah, it's it. I, I think it's going to boom. And another thing that like the, kind of chicken littles of the world that like the sky is falling. Everybody's going broke. There's not mm. going to be any wrecks left to play poker anymore. Who's going to make any money? Like the ecosystem is not sustainable at the mm. way that it is. Um, I just had this thought just the other night that like, is a casino ecosystem sustainable? <laughs> like do, yeah. do casinos have an edge? I think we both know they do. And mm -hmm. it's obviously very profitable and obviously very sustainable for 40 plus years. Yeah. And they're working with much larger edges than poker players are. And somehow people just find the money to go sit in front of yeah. a slot machine and drop a few thousand dollars just over and over and over and over again. So like if that industry can, is sustainable, then you can't tell me that poker is not. Right. Definitely. I do think though that, there is something to be said about everything being these super long late regs, long re-entries, long so on and so forth. I do think that having some type of balance is definitely really important. Um, and I, I really hope to see WSOP does a lot more freeze outs. Um, and I would like to see other prestigious series do more freeze outs or single entries. Because like, while from a personal perspective, I want to be able to fire as many entries as possible. I'll unload the clip always. Um, if I think something's worth entering, I'm just going to enter it. And there's that, like, if I'm given the opportunity, I will fire. And if I'm given the opportunity to last minute late reg to fire close to the money or whatever, um, which is very profitable to do, I will do so. 
And I think that having those opportunities for pros isn't necessarily the best thing for the gamer. I do think that having some balance is important, but that being said, I mean, the economy can definitely handle it. And, you know, it's a lot of places are just going to do it anyway, so they can put up these big prize pools. I think it's fine for like most events. It's just I would like to see some of the more prestigious events stick to the some of the more classic of either single reentry or like one entry per flight type thing, just to find a little bit of balance. Yeah, and I mean variety is the spice of life, right? Like yep. tournaments should be structured differently for different experiences yep. and, and all that stuff. So that's cer- certainly reasonable. All right, so we'll start off. Well, not start off, but we'll move to the second question. I want you to imagine there's a greatest hits collection for the best stories you've accumulated in your mm. poker career. Uh, tell me a story that's on Ryan LaPlante's greatest hits collection. Hmm. I mean, the only things that really come to mind are like, you know, the, the main experiences that I've had with like making big final tables with railing friends, with seeing friends be really successful. Um, what about just a funny travel story, you know, just a funny sequence of events that you would tell, you know, laughing at dinner with your friends. I'm really bad at this type of thing. Like, um, I wish I was like a really good storyteller about this type of stuff off the cuff, but I'm really just not. There's just like, yeah, there's like lots of different things I can like look back on that I like really enjoyed, but you know, a lot of it's more just like. I don't know. I guess I'm just a boring guy, honestly. I really can't think of anything off the top of my head that I'd find to be like particularly really, really good and entertaining that um, I'd also feel completely comfortable telling. But even then, I can't even think of stuff I'd feel like uncomfortable telling. It's more (laughs) just like, like, well, obviously there are like plenty of times that I've had, you know, really enjoyable and really fun and really funny experiences and stuff. I'm just like really bad at those types of stories and stuff. It's just not something I've ever been really good at. So I'm the worst person to ask that type of question, unfortunately. I have to imagine that in your, all of your exploits playing live poker, that like just crazy things do happen that are just I mean, hilarious in the moment that are like, wow. Uh, there are like poker hands and stuff that are pretty funny or like situations I've seen that are like, you know, kind of funny, but it's just like, I'm just bad at like telling that type of stuff. I just, I really am. And it's also like on top of that, especially if it's, if there's like specific people involved, I just, I wouldn't really feel super comfortable telling something like that anyways, especially if it's something that might make them look kind of embarrassed. Although if people do want a really good story, Dan Zacht uh, recently on Twitter posted this really good Sean Perry story. And while it is incredibly embarrassing and kind of a mean story, the Daniel Coleman posting about, you know, Sean apparently scamming and yada, yada really made me let's, have some. Uh, let's let's add yeah. some context to this. It was piece, really funny, honestly. It, yes, it, it was something that we talked about in our community, too. That yeah. I, I read. Um, I don't know Sean Perry. I've never met him. I've never played with him. Do you have any firsthand experience with him? I played a lot with him. Um, I've played with him in some like live. I've honestly played with him in Vegas between buy-ins 1125 k And every time I've played with him, he just, he has a very big personality and he can really rub people the very wrong way. And I always thought that he was like, you know, a fine person and stuff. And then recently on Twitter, Dan, 
Daniel Coleman, you know, that Coleman um, posted a story about him and Sean betting on fantasy sports results and um, AE Jones and a bunch of other people like analyzed what was going on with it and essentially proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Sean was cheating and cheating Coleman out of millions of dollars. And attached to that post was Dan Zach telling this story about Sean Perry playing in some live game in Las Vegas and Sean being very loud and outgoing and stuff and, you know, kind of arrogant. Someone had, there was this lawyer guy at the table that had like offered Sean $100,000 if he would take, if he would take an IQ test and like have the best results, Sean would just get 100K. And at the table um, of the yeah, nine at, players. At the playing. table. Yeah, yeah. And everyone in the game agreed to take the IQ test. And then Sean declined. And they're playing super high stakes. So honestly, I'm going to snap decline always. Like, I'm not the smartest person in the room. It's never going to happen. <laughs> it's just I'm, I'm stone dead in that. And then the guy offered it to Sean that he would be in the top three, Sean decline, in the top half, in the top two thirds, and then offered him 200K that if he took it, that if he took it and took dead last, that he would give him 200K and Sean declined. And the Wait, reason no, he, he would give him 200k if sean wasn't dead last oh yeah yeah, yeah. wasn't dead last that that's what it was yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. wasn't dead last and while that's a really mean story the fact that it happened to him after you know it coming out that he's probably stole a million of dollars from a well-known poker player you know i really like seeing some you know sean Freud like that where it's just like Someone has that type of thing kind of coming to them. And also, it's just like, like I said, he he has this very abrasive personality and everyone kind of says the same thing about him. But yeah, I'm just like, honestly, when it comes to like things like that, for the most part, especially if it's something that I've seen in general, I'm just not super comfortable talking about that type of stuff for the most part. Yeah, you something cha- like this. You change the names of the people involved yeah. to protect the identities, right? That's that's, that's how it Yeah, works. I can do that too, but sometimes it'll be like somewhat obvious as to who it's <laughs> about. Also, I'm just like I don't really have the best memory for that type of stuff because it's it's pretty rare that it's stuff that like stands out to me, something that I think that matters. Being not the smartest person in the room, I have a very limited room in my brain for things that I really care about and those things tend to really stand out. Like you can tell me like a player and I'll remember, I'll usually remember like where we've played. I'll remember what I think about their game, what their style was. I might even remember some like really big hands that we've played. But sometimes you'll like, like, and I'll, I'll even, greatest example of this is there, there are definitely plenty of players that I've played many, many hours with where I can tell you exactly how I'm planning on exploiting them and why and what our history is. And I won't know their name. That's just like how my brain works. Like I'm just really bad at that type of stuff. It's just, I even like told that story wrong and I even read it recently. (laughs) Well, I'm really horrible at names too, for what it's worth. So don't, don't, uh, don't feel bad. And, you know, it's interesting. Fallow came on the podcast and he Mm -hmm. just did not give two shits about anything. Like he's just like, he's going to let the chips fall where they may and just say exactly who's involved, like in just whatever happens, happens and doesn't really care. And that to me, I, 
I admire him for his bravery because that that to me is something that's like, oof, I don't know if I could deal with like the the fallout of, yeah. uh, of doing that, you know? He's a very, very open person and also, again, has a, a pretty big personality. I really like him. I've always enjoyed playing with him. Um, again, he can be a little abrasive at times, but I think it's in a good way. Um, I think he always means well and... Yeah, he's just a very open person and willing to just say and do whatever is on his mind. And yeah, that is very nice and refreshing. Yeah, um, he's one of the best. Uh, I love Thalo. Okay, so we'll move on to a different question. What, what would you say is your poker superpower? I'm really good at remembering how people play. That's like one of my the best aspects of, of my actual playing game. Um, I, I just have a really good feel as to someone's general approach and style, and I'm really able to get into their mind and just put them. Like the, the Negreanu level of putting people on exact hands, I'm very, very good at doing. And I'm always really willing to trust those reads. Like if I just think someone's never bluffing in a spot and I don't beat their value, I'll just fold always no matter what. Not even a, really a consideration. And that being said, on the opposite side of that, if I think someone has a somewhat weak capped range, or if I think they're capable of making very big folds, I will trust that always. Like, just always. I'm just always willing to follow through on spots like that. For instance, um, one of, to me, one of my favorite hands that I've ever played um, was uh, day two of the 10K PLO, WSOP champ. And um, I registered start of the day. I'd made a final table the day before, so I couldn't register it to last second. So I hop in last minute, um, sit with like 35, 40 big blinds and like third orbit um, playing seven handed and um, Hashem opens UTG to min. I peel like King, King, Jack, seven or something like that um, in cutoff. Blinds fold, flop is nine, nine. I want to say it's like nine, nine, five. He see bets a, Third pot, I call, turns a queen, um, adding a backdoor flush draw, which I don't have. Um, he barrels like half pot, I call. River's an ace, and he triple barrels 40% pot. And when he barrels, I decide to go all in. And the reason why is because I thought that he would assume I would only ever have aces and quads and nothing else. That I have not full house and quads and literally no other hand ever because my jam was for... Let's say his bet was for like 40K into 100K. My jam was for like 50K more. So it was for like 90K total. So it was, he was getting like absurd odds. He, he would have been getting like five to one on a call. And I just ran a pure bluff for him. And the reason why I did was... Uh, can I stop for... Yep, was ahead. one of your side cards a nine? No. No. I so you just had like, you had bear kings. Yeah, yeah just okay, bear kings. Cool. No blockers, no anything. All right. Um, and the reason why I was willing to follow through on it is, well, I hadn't played much with him there. I've played with him in the past. I played with him and hold him in the past and PLO in the past and other mixed games in the past. And I always thought that he was legitimately a really good hand reader that he's you know capable, maybe that he's not necessarily kept up to date with, you know, the pure theory of stuff, but that he has a very consistent game and is good at putting people on hands and proper ranges. And in that spot, I assume that he would correctly read that I would either only ever have pocket aces or quads for value. I would never have a worse hand for value. And I, and I hoped that he would also assume that I was never capable of bluffing there because just his 
gloves there? Like, what types of hands would you even, like, realistically turn into a bluff? And he tanked for forever and then showed me pocket aces for the nut full house and folding. And to me, the reason why I like that hand so much is because that really describes who I am as a player. That if I just have a specific read on a situation, I will trust it almost always. And the few times that I actually get upset of myself for, uh, for um, any time I play is when I'm not willing to trust those instincts. And, or if I don't take enough time to give myself that opportunity. Poor Joe Hashem. Right. <laughs> Poor Joe Hashem. I mean, that is pretty sick, actually. So, um, which actually kind of reminds me of my first hand back from uh, playing live poker for COVID. Literally the first hand I sit down and play. Um, it's an 1100 uh, multi-flight event at MSPT um, at the Venetian. It's like February. It was the end of February of this year. Literally the first live hand I've played since February of the previous year. So in a year. Brand new to table. Everyone's wearing like masks and stuff. There's, you know, the plexiglass everywhere. Can't really see people very well. Um, I'm in like one of the corner seats as well. That's like really obscured. Um, and guy on my right, never seen him before. He has a hoodie up and a mask and like a hat too. So all I can see were his eyes and no other aspect of him. There's like an open, he peels, uh, there's like an open and a call, he peels button. I have ace queen off in the small blind. I three bet squeeze like six X, holds back to him. He calls. Flop is like two, four, five or two, four, six. Um, I see bet a quarter pot. He calls. Turn is like a middling card that adds, it was like two, I want to say it was two, four, six with a flush draw. Turn is a five, adding the flush. I check, he bets a quarter pot. I call. River is a seven, bringing the four liner. So it's uh, four, five, six, seven with three, like three hearts. And I have like ace, queen, no heart. I check and he goes all in. And I call correctly. And I called for a lot of different reasons, but mostly it was just, even though he's completely obscured, I could just tell that he was uncomfortable the entire time. So I just like waited like 90 seconds, thought he was still uncomfortable and then just went, well, I really hope he doesn't have ace four for like a pair that beats my ace high and then called and was correct. And it like gunned my head, like at that point, if you told me, if, if you were like, Ryan, uh, give me 10 to one and you have to decide whether he's bluffing or not, I would have snap called without even really thinking about it because I just knew he was bluffing. And that also just describes me as a player is that, when I'm playing live and I'm really in the zone, that's just like, that is my element. Like that was, that's honestly what I was built to do that and coaching just because I really love coaching. It's, I get a lot of enjoyment out of it. It's a lot of fun. I really love helping out other players. Um, and I love helping people have the same passion for the game and industry that I have. See, so man, that, that's a that's good story. That's a, that's a good story, right? But it's a poker hand. That's not a story. That's a poker hand. It's a true. story is like telling um, a joke about like someone getting overly drunk and doing something really degen and like that type of stuff. I'm I'm bad at those things because I'm boring. Poker hands that I can do. Yeah. Um. Nice call. And I, I think that like 
it's interesting. Do you do you think you're just constructed this way as a human being? Do you think this is, you know, your superpower is a learned thing, just natural? It's definitely a learned thing, like 100% a learned thing. I think like really that is that I just, I have a lot of gumption. Like I just, I'm willing to like grind through and, you know, really put in the work. And, you know, the reason why I say it's a learned thing and the, the also the reason why I strongly believe in like coaching and training and helping people get better if that's what they want to do is because when I first started playing poker with friends back in junior high, I was a fish. Like 100% I was a fish. And I didn't start to really even beat those games until I learned about two plus two existing and learning that there's math involved. And like, I'm, I'm no like Stu Unger savant or anything like that. Um, there really has never, there've been plenty of games that I've played like at a pretty high level and played competitively online. Um, specifically like Halo's one of the games that I was actually very, very, very good at. But even for that, it's just like, I just grinded through it and became good through putting in hard work and studying. And at no point in my career have I ever felt as though that I just, you know, made some super big leap because I just have that ability. Um, maybe the, really the only thing is just, I just have a good sense of when people are comfortable and uncomfortable and, you know, I'm good at doing that at the poker table only. And even then, like, even that was something that I had to learn that I have to like be really focused and on top of things. And, you know, at really, I guess a lot of it comes down to as well, that a lot of my career, I just really struggled that there, it took a long time for me to quote unquote, have that breakout. I didn't really, you know, start to be somewhat successful playing until I won my bracelet. And, you know, so and even then it was just like, I still had some periods after that things were still like a tough grind. And especially more recently, like the recent downswing I've been on is the worst of my career to a very significant degree. Um, and it's just like, because things have never really came that easily, I've, you know, I'm so much more okay with just grinding through it. And I think that that perseverance and that willingness to work hard and also to diversify yourself is such an important aspect of the game and industry and you know being really disciplined about things is also incredibly 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 important and while you know i might you know joke around about things especially like win 1100 um last week i fired seven entries under and while i may like joke around about like blasting off entries and like that type of stuff I played my A plus game every single entry and I'm very happy with how I played every single decision. And even though I fired a lot, it's just, if I'm playing well, I'm willing to keep entering. That's all like I can really do is just put in my best effort. And while, you know, the grind recently hasn't been that great, I've still just been working hard and improving and just doing my best to get better and put myself into good opportunities and just grind through it. And I think that, I think like a lot of people have this misconception in terms of what most people's poker careers look like. And I would say that the way my poker career looks is better than a lot of others. And I've still had to struggle a lot. I, I, I really have. And I think that that's just true for most people. Um, and the reason why I think like discussing this stuff is really important is because most people just talk about, you know, the really good highs and big scores and sick results and, you know, all these all these things that make poker seem like this really glamorous, great, 
thing to do. And really it's just, it's a tough grind. And whether you're playing cash games or tournaments, whether you're doing a low variance grind or really chasing titles or whatever, or chasing poker greatness, the thing is, is that it's just, it's difficult. It's tough. And I think that people need to be more open about that and about how, you know, really it's just like kind of a, it's just like, the thing is, is that if someone came up to me and asked me whether or not they should play poker for a living, I would tell them no. And if they're still willing to do it, that shows that they have that type of grind that and passion that's needed. Because the thing is, is that if you don't absolutely love it, it's just not going to go well. It just, it really isn't. And even if you do love it, it can still just go really poorly for incredibly long stretches. Like um, this pretty good friend of mine, um, he decided to start trying to play professionally about a year and a half ago. Um, started off on his own, started to have some pretty good results, got backed and coached by a different friend of mine. And he started doing pretty well off the bat, like had a really good first couple of months. And then just since then, essentially just spent nine months breaking even. And it's just like, even though he had the right type of resources, had like people mentoring him and really helping him out, he just still didn't really make it. And you can have all these things going well for you and still just not be able to do it. And there's a lot of different reasons as to why. Um, I honestly don't really know why he didn't do well. I, if you told me that he would have had a hundred K, you know, year over the last year grinding for the guy, I would have said, yeah, of course. And he just did it. And, you know, the thing is, is that it's just, it's a tough, complex game and it's a really tough industry. And, you know, variance is long and full of terrors. And if you're not willing to, even if you are willing to do absolutely everything right, it's still easy to fail. fish dog bets the flop and you don't know what to do one man coach brad wilson has a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads and rip that dunk to shreds nuffle available now go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash nuffle rated r yeah it's tough i mean the, the old uh, expression that it's poker is a hard way to make an easy living. I mean, I, I don't know that truer words have ever been spoken yeah. about this game. It is a hard way to make an easy living. And, you know, what you're talking about is kind of the origin of this podcast, right? Because I, mm. being that I've played poker for almost two decades at this point, professionally, I I know that the struggle is real. And I know that there's no linear path. There's no nobody out there that's just got a graph that goes straight up that didn't struggle with pain, suffering, have these existential crises of like, why am I playing this game for a living? Well, I know of a couple, but they're the exception. Cumacon, right? Like the, that's the first person that kind of goes, sticks in my mind. Maybe like Cole South playing heads up PLO back in the day. He had uh, sort of like a mic drop straight up graph, but these are like, these, these are the mutants of the poker yeah. world, right? These are like just the exceptions to the rule. Most people, it's yeah, not no. linear and straight no. up. It, it's a struggle. It's, yeah. And yeah, so that was the point of this, you know, the origin of this show is like trying to hear people's story about the struggle and the breakthrough and what led to that and the pain and the suffering and lessons learned, wisdom gained. And to go back a little bit, you know, you talked about just putting in the work, learning, poker, growing, improving, 
so that you can, you know, make these exploitable call downs. And the reality is like what it boils down to in my mind, it's not even so much the work because I think Mm -hmm. as a coach, I have a lot of awareness around the fact that even when people know what they ought to do or feel like they know what they ought to do, they still have to execute it, which Mm -hmm. is a totally different animal. Um, and you know, what you're speaking about is self-trust, right? When you trust Mm -hmm. yourself, you give yourself the latitude to sometimes, you know, end up with egg on your face and something doesn't go well. And you know, you forgive yourself for that, but other times you're going to play above the rim and you're going to do things that other human beings just don't do on a regular basis. And I can't remember the exact hand. It was uh, it was a hand that I played on the poker coaching uh, stream, mm-hmm. uh, like private stream for poker coaching premium members, cash game stream. And it was a weird spot where it's like a four bet pot and it was a monotone flop and I flopped top pair and I ended up leading into the pre-flop raiser. And I can't even remember why I did it. It was almost just like intuitive and instinctual. And like in the moment, I was like, hmm, I'm going to lead. So anyway, I do it. Uh, like I turned top two pair on like a four flush board and I checked and like the villain bet 70%. And I was just like, why, why do I live life the way that I do? I uh, just hated everything about the world. I ended up folding, but I shared the hand with John, my tactical Tuesday co-host. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like I was struggling to develop really good reasons for leading. And I just told him at the end of the day, if my intuition was that I ought to do that, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to give myself the latitude to trust my intuition, recognizing something that maybe my conscious mind is not going to recognize. Yep. And just as a poker player, that's what I, I live and die by mm-hmm. that, by giving myself the freedom to pull the trigger and do something that's unconventional that other people might be like, that. there's no way that's good. Because I believe in myself and I believe right. in my ability to navigate through these spots better than most all other humans on the planet. And like when you have that self-trust, you, you just do it and you don't really think about it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to and me I, is great. I think that's really true for, uh, for tournaments because you know when you get down to the end stages of a tournament, the, the dynamics shift very quickly. And what people are willing to do and why shifts incredibly quickly. And it's, it's a very different experience, whether you're playing a small to midfield high roller, whether you're playing a WSOP event, whether you're playing whatever. Like, every deep run is always wildly different. And even it could be literally the exact same lineup of players, and everything could be wildly different just based off of what type the other factors of the tournament are. And... The thing is, is that the really like top tier elite tournament players can be put into those spots and just navigate them very, very well. And really, a lot of it just comes down to that instinctual ability to just trust yourself in those really big spots. Um, Even like I know and I've spoken to a lot of different like really, really good high stakes, like truly high stakes elite guys. Um, And a lot of them have kind of said the same type of stuff, which is just like, yeah, it's really important to really put in a lot of hours to, you know, to really, really study the solvers, to really master ICM theory, to really like do all this other stuff to build this 
fundamentally quote unquote perfect game. And at the end of the day, you don't really truly follow it. It's just, it's too complex. It's impossible truly to do it. And especially when it comes to playing three-way and four-way pots, the solves just aren't really there anyways. So a lot of being successful, even at the highest stakes, isn't really about playing theoretically perfect. It's about playing theoretically at a very high level and then taking it to that other level and have allowing yourself to make these incredibly good decisions based off of instincts and intuition. And the thing is, is that while obviously both of us are advocating for this, I think by far the most important aspect of it to be able to do that is to work on your fundamental game and get it as good as you possibly can. Because when the fundamental aspects of your game are as well built as you can possibly get them, then that intuitive side of your game has the room to really be there and grow and to really show itself. Yeah, it's earned. You have to yeah. you have to earn the right to trust yourself to play at a high level in those kind of spots because if you haven't earned it and you just do it, you're going to get smashed in the face. That's just yeah, the reality. Very like you it's very easy because like if you do if you are deploying an executable strategy, well, the reality is like you are exploitable yourself if mm. people know what you're doing. And if you misread a data point and you do something inappropriately, you're just going to get smashed in the head. And that's sort of like where the, the artistic element of it right. is, I think, is like high-level players see data points that most people don't see, and they're able to prioritize them better than other yep. players. And, and like you mentioned, you know, kids got covered from head to toe. You can see their eyes. And yet you can still tell that they're uncomfortable. And that's a data point that you prioritize to make that yep. decision. So like the fundamentals at that point don't matter really a matter. ton, right? It's just that know. one data point of you recognizing this dude's uncomfortable. I've got a nice bluff catcher and I don't think they're value betting. So I'm just going to call and, and like it, it's simple that, but that doesn't mean that it was easy. Yeah. The opposite side of this as well is that, you can do all of this perfectly and still just be wrong, quote-unquote. You sure. can have an exact read on their range and make the correct, quote-unquote, call and then still just look like it was a bad decision. And that that's, to me, that's where that perseverance, that discipline, that gumption really starts to matter is that you can have these big downswings happen, especially playing tournaments. And you can have these decisions occur where you think you're making a very good decision. And in reality, you are. But then you get told this information that says you were wrong. And that's also where it can be very, very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, Jason, Jason Kuhn actually has this. Uh, he, I want to say you said this in like a, an interview or something like that. But it was, some, it was something along the lines of, when he is playing and making decisions at the table, he is the best player in the world. And arguably he is one of the best players in the world too. So it's a little bit easier for him, but for the rest of us as well, when you're at the table and you're in the moment, you, you are the best, you are the best version of yourself that you will ever be at that exact point. And you need to be willing to just trust yourself and to follow through on decisions. And to, I'm not saying you shouldn't ignore other data points. I'm saying you should be able to go through every single data point analyze them and then trust that analysis but then on the opposite side of that away from the table you're a leak riddled mess and you need to work really hard to consistently improve 
and discuss hands and to verify that the reads that you thought you had were accurate. Like you can make, uh, that's also one of the most beautiful things about the game is that you can make a decision for a perfectly logical, reasonable, strategic decision and just have it be completely and totally terrible. Have it be completely off. Like, um, really great example of this. A buddy of mine played a, a hand recently, and he got to the river with a hand that it, it was just, like, outside of a range. Like, his hand was just so fucking strong and so outside of a range. And he ended up folding it, and he folded it for all the right reasons, but it just was a pure call always. Like, 100% fist pump, high five the dealer, snap call. But he folded it because he analyze the situation as my opponent is never bluffing thus i should fold because i don't beat quote unquote value but if he had really taken the time to break apart the other data points in the hand that when he gets to this situation he not only has a hand that is incredibly strong but on top of that it's actually really strong versus the other player's value range then just end up being a really easy decision even if the person was never bluffing ever 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 it was still a snap call and even though he had the right logic and he approached it in the right type of fashion because he missed a key aspect of the hand that really dictated every other decision then he ended up making arguably a very bad decision and unless you have people that you're willing to really trust and have these good discussions with you're never really going to get to that that point yourself it's why I think one of the most important things you can really do is just surround yourself with players that are really of all skill and abilities and just being willing to have these type of discussions. It's also really why like one of our key focuses with LPP is building community because, you know, we help players of like-minded abilities and desires to get together and to really work on and improve their game through discussion. And like, to me, like the people that I see and that I know personally, that work hard on their game through a solvers and that type of stuff. But more importantly, just discussing hands with friends and other players. Those are the most successful players. I know. I don't know a single person that doesn't really discuss a lot of hands that also has been successful, not a single one. And the people that I see that are <laughs> well, starting <you> because <laughs> they never talk to anybody. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that too, but more just that, like the players that, I play verse uh, pretty regularly live that I know or that I'm pretty confident don't really surround themselves with other players. I can see that their game has hasn't improved or changed. Like there are reads that I have on players in Vegas that I've had for literally nine years that are still accurate too, which is yeah. just like shameful. It's and they're like grinders shameful. I know that have had like there are grinders I know that their game is the exact same as like five years ago. Six yeah. Years and it's just like, I can tell that they're just not putting in the work. I, I don't even mean the solver work. They're just not discussing hands with people. Yeah, it's laziness, really. It's un unforgivable to be able to have the same read on somebody for six years is just, yeah, unforgivable. Um, another thing I would say, too, like the hand where, you know, your friend analyzed the data points, logically made their way through the hand, and then found a fold on the river, you know, something that gets overlooked a lot of times is just how strong a hand is relatively and not absolutely. Yeah. And like yeah. when you lose sight that like, okay, from an absolute standpoint, 
maybe my hand is not so strong, but from a relative yeah. standpoint, this is like beyond top of range right. for how I get here. Then, you know, it sort of shifts the way that you think about the hand and also shifts exactly. how villain views you because then villain has opportunity to value cut themselves in, with a lot of different hands, knowing that right. like you don't have a relatively very strong hand. So it's just an easy mistake to make and something that mm -hmm. oftentimes surprises my private coaching students where I'm like, okay, so you're constructing this way. Well, name me a better hand that gets to the river like this. And then they just kind of pause and they're like, well, that's pretty concerning. And I'm like, yeah, that's why like when you make this big fold here, this is the best hand that you ever have. And so you don't get to fold that because of the way that you're constructing your range. That being said, there are times actually where I've folded the absolute best hand I have as bots. But it's like, it's against the people that will never value bet worse and are right. capable of winning. Yeah. I think like exploitab exploitably we can, but against a player yeah. that's like thinking and has some bluffs in range and just basically... Or just has worse value. To me, that's more worse value too. Yeah. When they, when they can... When you beat value, that's pretty much means that you just always call. You, you don't yeah, get to fold exactly. once you, you beat some of the value bets. But another part of it, too, is like it also needs to facilitate thinking about how they're constructing their ranges on earlier streets and how mm -hmm. that sort of snowballs into future decisions. Because like, yeah. if, the, if the best hand you show up with on the river um, is not a call against the villain, then we need to start looking at how we're showing up on rivers in these spots so that you have yeah. stronger hands, which is another thing that I don't think people really think a ton about. It kind of, it kind of popped up in a private coaching session. One of my students just a few days ago was playing one K and L and they had ace queen high. So they had a bluff catcher on the river villain checked. They ended up checking behind and it was a strong regular and the regular had um, a hand that my student assumed they would be bluffing with almost always because it was a good natural bluff. And I just told them like, well, if you bet, it's likely you're going to get check raised. And the reality is if they want check raises in their river range, if they want to have bluffs, then they don't get the bluff every single time with these natural bluffs because those hands need to be natural check raises. So like right. they're just, you know, constructing more balanced, strong ranges by checking some hands that don't have showdown value because they need to have natural check raises. And if you always bet your bluffs, well, then you don't have natural check raise bluffs. Right. So like, you know, the game is just, it's complex, it's big. Yeah. And the more advanced you get, the, the more things you kind of uncover and the more spots and areas you see, well, okay damn it, they're just playing on another level here and now we just need to level up and really think deeper about the decisions that we're making and like, doesn't matter what stake you play, that's always the path because yeah. the stronger players get, you know, the more you need to know, the more you need to learn and the better you, you need to be able to construct those types of situations. Yeah, definitely. And I think that like that level of complexity is also why the game can be just so difficult is because in especially in tournaments, you need to be comfortable with thinking about spots to that level. And you also need to be capable of just going, well, when this person bets here, they just have this hand like always. So what does my hand here need to do or something? Which like, admittedly, you need to yeah. <laughs> happens a lot more in live poker. Yeah, yeah, especially playing live. Yeah. Um, online, that's a lot less common for sure. Yeah, because live, I mean, the the worse the lower caliber players that you play against the better able you are to put people on like exact hands 
Um, and you can put people on exact hands. Like this is yeah. not like a, it's not a fluke. It's not magic. It is just some people will only play one hand in the exact way that they do. Yeah. And that's just the reality of live poker. It's really fun when you can call someone's exact combination. Out. That's, that's what I, I really enjoy being able to do that. sometimes. I really think as well that a lot of people just way, 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 way underestimate <clears throat> variance and how variance really shows itself as well. And to me, that's really why poker is just so difficult. Like all of this other stuff that we have to worry about and go through and deal with and everything. And then on top of that, we just get bad information a lot. Like we just get told we're wrong a lot, even when we're perfectly right. And we get told we're right a lot when we're perfectly wrong. Like maybe my ace queen call versus this guy was just absolutely terrible. And I just found that 5% frequency that he had the bluff and my read was completely wrong. That's possible. Like that is 100% possible is that my call was fucking awful and it torched money. And I have no way to prove that really that my call was accurate outside of that. I just, you know, I just knew it was, it was a good call. I'll stand by it was a good call <laughs> and I know it was, but I could still be wrong. That level of certainty, I could still be wrong. In fact, Dan Smith actually just had a tweet today about he didn't take a bet with someone because he was 100% certain he was right and he didn't want to take the guy's money. So he was nice and didn't take the bet. And the follow-up of that tweet was, and I was completely wrong. <laughs> and, he, and like, like, yes, being certain and confident is important and being willing to trust your instincts and stuff is important, but you also just have to realize you're human and you're going to fail and you suck at things. It's just like, you can be very, 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 very good at something and still just do really stupid things. Like the IV misreading his hand and folding like and mucking it when he, it's just like shit happens. And like, while it is really important to try to get to that level of your game and everything and to get to that kind of level of confidence and stuff, it's also, you just need to be okay with just being human and sucking and just making bad decisions and just failing not failing because of outside factors just failing because you just sucked at it and that's okay like that's important that you can do that and learn from it and grow from it and i think that's really i think that that's one of my superpowers is that if anything is that i know that sometimes i just suck and that that's okay it is it's just like I just need to be able to look back at those personal failures, whether in poker or outside of poker, look at why I did it, why it happened, you know, what led me to that, you know, decision to, or to that action and to just improve and try to be better for it. And, you know, it's just, shit's hard. Life's hard. Poker is really fucking hard. And like, the thing is, is that you're just, you're going to fail a lot and you're going to fail because of, things you can't control and things you can control. And for the things that you can control, you just need to be willing to analyze it openly and then just try to improve. And a lot of the times your attempts at improvement will just also fail. And then you just keep at it and you keep improving. And, you know, it's just a long, tough grind. And on, then on top of that, you have all these other factors that can make things even worse. And then you'll have the, your own personal anxieties and everything else on top of that. And it's just like, if you're not really willing to give it your all and to fail consistently, you're just going to have, you're still going to have kind of a bad time at times, even when you really want it. But if you don't, if you aren't willing to like 
deal through deal with that. You're just going to end up not being quote unquote successful, whether in poker or in the rest of your life. Yeah. And this is specifically important for players that are already having some success and are already striving to be successful poker players. Uh, in the pre-conversation, I was I was telling you that the confidence in my game, my confidence in my game has never been higher. And I mm -hmm. feel just like a killer. Like I'm just ready to go out there and play cards and just play it at, at the highest level I've ever played of, played at. And, you know, the stakes don't really matter to me right now. I'm just like, whatever, put me in there. On that same token, I do go out of my way on Wednesday nights on occasion at Poker Power Hour, I will share hands where I know I made mistakes. And mm. I do that for a specific reason. A, I want to show people like I fuck up and I fuck up all the time. And that's the reality of this game is you are going to make mistakes. Like no matter mm. who you are, no matter what your win rate is, no matter what stakes you play, you will make regrettable decisions every single time you sit down to play cards. You can't yeah. get away from it. That's the reality. Yeah. And two, I just want to, uh, you know, sort of harden myself to being a little bit vulnerable and putting it mm -hmm. out there, being like, yeah. you know, even though I am confident right now, I, I'm still making mistakes and there's still room to grow. And I want to bear that in mind. So, like, you know, if you're playing at a reasonably high level, it's a thing that I see in Poker Power Hour just over time because we've been doing it now for a year and a half and we have some we have some exceptional just killers in that group that play poker at a very high level. I mean, it, it's really it's awesome the way that everything's kind of come together. But I saw that a lot of times people are only sharing the hands where the hero call works out and the, the hero bluff goes through, right? And I realized like, this is not really the reality of how their session is going, but it's mm -hmm. just this sort of like fear of being vulnerable, fear of putting yourself out there, fear of admitting that you don't know, you don't have all the answers in every yeah. single hand. Um, I actually, uh, uh, yesterday did a, a group coaching session. We do them every Wednesday. And, um, at the end, you know, people, uh, we'd had like 30 minutes left. So people were like, Oh, Hey Ryan, um, since we've been discussing these, you know, a couple different river spots, let's just look at, your river decisions to see like your river call downs mm -hmm. and there was definitely some river call downs in there i was not happy with i was like oh god that was an awful decision most of them i was like yep see i blocked their strongest stuff i unblocked their bluffs sweet easy call oh this person's capable of bluffing here sweet easy call and there was a couple of the call downs that i made that i initially actually disliked looking at it but then i like saw other things that i'd missed when initially talking about it. i was like oh that actually was a good call but there was a couple in there that were just absolutely terrible. They were just really bad. And it's just like, yeah. Uh, and like, I, you know, doing, showing that uh, we had like 40 people there and, you know, they're all students and LPP members and stuff. And it's just like, yeah, I sucked. It, this was a bad decision. Don't do this. And it's just like, you know, that, that vulnerability is difficult, especially like there are plenty of hands that I post to Twitter as well that I do the polls with and stuff that I get a lot of feedback on from very good high stakes players that are like, Hey, why are you doing this? Hey, this sucks. And I was just like, yeah, I made a bad decision there. I agree. I should have done this instead. And it's just like, I think that that openness and that willing to kind of fail publicly also has just made me a lot more thick skinned. Oh, best example of this. Okay. This is actually a really good poker story 
that is me making a decision that ended up being wrong, that I'm pretty confident was right, but that looked really bad. So um, not last summer, but two summers ago, um, played my first ever 50K, um, the WCP 50K at the start. And I uh, was the first person out. And when we started, we were 300 big blinds deep. So, you know, preparing for this event, you know, actually earlier that day, I was on a 10K WPT final table. I was like four out of six and took six. And then I was like, well, okay, at least I get to play this 50K, get to sit super deep. It should be a lot of fun. should be really interesting. And the highest bind I've ever played in my life. I've never played any other 50Ks yet. Um, and I snap busted. And I snap busted in a really, really, really big bluff catch, which makes it even worse. 300 big blind deep bluff catch. You're going to enjoy this hand. So fun player, oh, uh, we're six hand with an Annie, 300 big deep effective. Fun player opens um, from MP1. William Sirovich calls from cutoff. I defend big blind with ace six of hearts, I want to say. Um, flop was jack six deuce with uh, one heart. I want to say when check, feedback, call, call. Turn was the five of hearts, adding a backdoor flush draw for me. Um, check, check, Ali bets. I check raise three and a half X. Fun player calls. Uh, e calls. Why did you check raise Sorry, the turn? Fun, fun player folds. He calls. On the turn, I don't really have that many hands that work really great as. Wait, one sec. I'm misremembering my hand. There we go. Okay. Okay. Sorry, 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 sorry. I got this. <laughs> Other way around. I had five, four. There we go. Sorry, I misremembered. I was thinking of one of his hands that he could have as a bluff. Never mind. I don't remember. I don't know why I did it. Okay, sorry. It's way more, it's a lot more fun. Okay. I defend big blind with five, four. Um, flop is jack, six, deuce. Check, check. Uh, or, yeah, check, bet, call, call. Turns of five, adding backdoor flush draw. Check, check, bet, check, raise fold call so i have a pair of fives with a gutter gutter ball river is the five i bet so i actually had ran the spot in po and po just wanted me to peer jam it um obviously it's a little bit different since there's uh, we were three ways on flop and then technically three ways on turn but if against like two heads up ranges there like po just wants me to jam river um, I really wish I could run it in a three-way post-flop solver um, that was better than simple three-way. But uh, my assumption was that in a cash game, if I get to this river with just this really weird trips, that my hand is so very strong, especially with the turn flush draw. And I have a lot of hands that are just, you know, not very good as well, that I could just jam it for value. Instead, what I ended up doing is I bet, I want to say about 85% pot, and then he jams. And when I was trying to think about like what hands I beat, there weren't that many things because I beat zero value. I, I don't beat a single value hand. So I just beat bluffs. And then it comes down to what types of bluffs that he can get to on the river that he would actually want to bluff jam. And the only things I could think of were six X of hearts. Hands that he would get to the turn with, pick up a flush draw, 
bet it because it has just good overall equity and we're super deep effective. And if one of us does check raise, he can still call it. And then that when I do bet the river and he jams, what hands do I have as calls? And I was like thinking about it. And I actually thought that five, four, that blocked specifically six, five suited. Um, and that might be a better call technically than even like pocket deuces since deuces still, uh, it just, they beat the exact, literally the exact same hands. I, either he has a hand like six, five or pocket sixes, and he might not even have six, five ever. Uh, just because he peeled pre in a spot that I don't see theory ever peeling there, but it was a fun player open and we did have a pretty soft table. Um, and I ended up calling and I ended up being wrong. Um, he ended up having pocket sixes for the expected value hand. And the sick thing was, is when he like flipped up his hand, I saw the six of hearts first <laughs> and it like, I was like, ah, uh, oh, uh. Never mind. okay. And like, <laughs> Everything about that hand from the preflop calls perfectly fine. It was like a two and a half X call. Got a pretty auto call, even though it is a stone bottom of range call. And if it was a very good opener, very good caller, it's probably a perfectly fine fold. The flop calls also perfectly fine versus small C bet and call because I've got gutter to the stone nuts. And then the turn check raise. This is where things start to get, you know, kind of into. I wouldn't say fun land, but it's like, I actually have a combo that, again, assuming we were heads up, it would check raise at a really high frequency. So I've got a hand that it has vulnerable showdown equity, but also can river a lot of equity and that I can turn my hand into a bluff since I also am going to have the nuts here occasionally. Like I just have, I have not, the nuts and sets way more often than he does. Um, neither of us ever have top set. I have way more two pairs than he does. So this combo just works amazing as a bluff. We're straight as a bluff here, so I can then follow through on river bluffs. Um, and or I can call it and then check raise the river as well. Like it works great both ways. And on the river, when I do make my bet, like if he's just like not bluffing ever, it's just like my hand just torches. It's just it's and I just lose. Not only do I lose, I lose very quickly in the largest bind of my career. And that's ended up what happening. And you know, so what I'm most proud of is the moment I busted, you know, I wasn't frustrated or upset or annoyed or anything. I went over to a side table and just typed out the hand. I just typed it on my, uh, on my phone. Um, it was described like, you know, 50 K bust. And then I, you know, put into Google doc, posted to Twitter and just, you know, posted that I was first person out and what the hand was and my thought process at every point and everything. And then by the time I was done writing that, it was like, maybe it took me like 30 minutes to write it or so. Um, I walked over to the registration cage and bought into the, the big 500, the $500 player, you know, the really big, the big 50 or whatever they call it. Um, it was $500 buy-in. And not only did I do poorly in that, um, so in that there was uh, six total flights and you could fire two entries per flight. I fired all 12 entries and didn't cash. And that was the only person that played more than 10 entries that didn't cash. And if you ask me how I played on every single entry, I fucking killed it. I was in crush zone. I, I was really fucking on point. I actually, on bullet three, I bet called the turn with an absurd hand because I just knew the guy was bluffing and just drilled it on me. And it was just like, I was really on point every single bullet. And I didn't, I wasn't even a little tilted the entire time. And the thing was, is that 
the reason why like this hand and like this is actually probably one of the most like proud set uh, like series of events is that I was a willing to be very public about everything, b willing to grind immediately after, c stayed on point, and then d just kept grinding the rest of the summer and was completely and totally okay just getting completely crushed. And previously in my career, and even even these days, still occasionally grinding online and stuff, like I've always been really bad with tilt, really, really, really bad, especially online. But just in general, I've just been really, really, really bad with tilt in the past. I've worked so, so, so hard to get a lot better at it. And while I haven't completely solved and fixed my tilt issues, when I'm playing live, outside of like maybe extreme momentarily annoyance, the moment I like walk away from the table and buy back in or get into my car or whatever, I'm completely and totally over it and give absolutely zero fucks. I'm ready to play whatever else. I can go from playing a 50K to playing a 500 and play my A plus game in both. And like that progress, a lot of hard work. And that tilt still enters in my game occasionally. Um, like during, uh, during COVID, I definitely had tilt issues. I bet a lot of people listening to this had tilt issues during COVID grinding online. And it's because you have all of these negative outside factors. And then on top of that, you're you know playing these big sessions and taking beat after beat after beat. And it's so much harder to deal with when A, there's so much of a but B, you have all these other stresses and anxieties and everything else coming in on top of it and making it a lot worse. And I was like grinding. I wasn't even really grinding. I was just playing Sunday sessions and stuff, but I was playing when I wasn't 100% wanting to be there. And that's just going to make the tilt worse no matter what, whether you're playing well or playing poorly, you're just going to like struggle with tilt. At least I do personally. Uh, yeah. Poker is the ultimate in holding a mirror up and showing you the truth about yourself. Uh, it's the, it's a thing that like, it will show you how strong you are. It, it will yep. show you the reflection of like, you think you're strong. Let's see how strong you are. Let's see how well put together you can be. Um, and it will just do this over and over and over and over again. And oh yeah, I mean, you know, your story at the WSOP, that's, you know, really, really, something that you ought to be proud of yourself for because that level of resilience is fairly rare in the poker space. And yeah, it's, uh, it's just one of those things that again, you got to work through, you got to deal with, yeah. you, you have to work on biologically human beings. I don't think are created to be able to navigate poker emotionally very well. Definitely it's a not. learned skill and you just have to work at it because, and everybody deals with it. And like, if you really look at it as like, if you can navigate it better than everybody else, then your results will improve. So there is edge to be gained, like oh, yeah, frame it from that perspective. Then I think it becomes a much worth more worthy pursuit. Yeah, definitely. I also just think in general that like when you have, something that's this difficult if it's something that you really are passionate and want to do that there is room because like well at the end of the day if someone came up to me and said you know should i play poker professionally my answer would in general almost always be no but when they said hey ryan i'm doing this no matter what i really love this can you help me and i'll point them in the right direction um and i've taken a lot of people under my wing I 
one of our my, our more recent projects, something that we're doing LPP, is um, a guy by the name of Rob Gardner, uh, poker pastor. He's been playing for a long time. In fact, I actually, I was going through, um, when I was moving out stuff out of my office, we moved houses pretty recently, and I was like going through stuff in my office, and I actually found a, like this big report that I needed to like do taxes and stuff one year. I was doing it poorly, but um, I'd like gotten this, like uh, this big sheet of like massive packet of paper from stars for all my transfers and results and yada, yada. And one of the things I'd actually found in there was actually a transfer I'd made to Rob in like 2009, 12 years ago, I'd made transfer to him on stars. So he's been around for a long time. He and I have been kind of in similar so circles and stuff occasionally for a long time. And he never has had like a breakout year. Like, even though he's been trying to play professionally for 11 years or 12 years or so, I think his largest score was like 16K. And he's been playing some singles, but mostly a lot of tournaments and stuff. Never really had like a breakout online year or even a breakout month. Really. And when I first started working with him, I could actually see why. There was just, his game was just like all over the place. There wasn't like a lot of structure in it. And I could tell that he's learned from a lot of different sources and then was trying to put it all together. And it was just this kind of zombie, this Frankenstein of a game. And we just steadily like kind of stripped it down, started like go really going through the basic fundamentals and then also really introducing, um, you know, exploits and stuff. Some of the main exploits that I really teach for touching uh, soft, low stakes games. And the thing that Rob really has going for him is that, I think he's even way better at this than I am. It's just that he is incredibly, incredibly resilient and open to um, just open to criticism and open to like breaking apart his game and doing things. And that's also, I think, in part why his game was where it was at is because he was so open to everything that he wasn't closing off certain aspects of it and just having confidence in what he was doing well. And there was like... He was making really good progress. His game was really where I, I liked seeing it. And then it kind of fell apart. And it fell apart because he had started doing some in-depth theory studying. And he was entering all that stuff into his game at the same time while he's playing low stakes on Ignition. He's playing against people that just see cards and make decisions. And when you're doing that type of thing, you're just, when you're playing high-end theory against these players, you're just not going to do it. And I could tell that because like the sites that he was supposed to be making the most money on, he was doing the port the most, like he was just making the least on. He was actually losing money on them. And we saw this, we broke it apart, we fixed it. And three weeks later, we did another session and his game was exactly where I wanted it to be. It was like this really short time period. He went from completely falling apart to having the exact type of game I wanted him to have for these games. And um, he came out to do his first live, his first live grind in Las Vegas since like 2016. And his results were uh, chop a small field, uh, deep run something, second place for his largest score ever, deep run, deep run. That, that was his like two weeks here, was just completely and totally crushed it. And then when he and I were discussing hands and stuff, he was telling me spots where it was just like, he made this absurd hero call because he was willing to trust himself because he'd been putting in the work and he had that confidence in his game. And 
that level of resilience is why he's going to be successful. It's just that if you're someone that when, you know, you get told that the game's really difficult and then on top of that, you struggle for a long time, but you're willing to battle through it. That's what's needed. It's, it's just that, and I'm not even saying this because, you know, I think poker is some especially complex and in-depth thing. I think this is just needed in almost every career out there is that, you just need to be completely and totally okay with failing a lot. And that if you're fortunate enough to find something that you can do and love, then when you do fail, it sucks less and it'll still suck. And that you just need to be okay with that. I mean, you can't achieve anything in life without earning it and feel good about it. Like, mm-hmm. You have to do the work. You have to fail. You have to make all the mistakes and come out the other side. And one of the things that are that's most important in that story is an openness to criticism. And that's a thing that will bury lots of people, especially private coaching students. And you know, I, I have I'm actually putting up gates, um, putting up barriers for people seeking out private coaching from me because I've realized over time that like some people I want to work with and will have success and other other people, um, they may be great people, but we're not going to be successful together. And so it's just a waste of, you know, both of our, both their money and my time. And I'm trying to weed those people out, but ultimately it boils down to trust. Mm -hmm. And if the student trusts the coach, great things happen. If the student doesn't trust a coach and wants everything to be proven and pushes back at every little thing, that's when no progress is made. That's when they're not confident in executing things. That's when they don't do their homework. That's when they struggle. Um, And and really, it's just, yeah, it, it all boils down to just trusting the methodology, trusting the process and being open that like you don't have all the answers and that somebody else can guide you to being a better version of yourself than you currently are. And that's what the best coaches do is they Mm -hmm. guide you into being the best version of yourself that you can be. And that's what they, at least the good ones strive to do. And they're not, they're not happy with failure, right? Like I think, and that's another thing too, as it relates to like, you know, poker training, poker products, all this stuff, like we're highly incentivized to create things and put them out in the world that give people success. Because if we don't, we're not going to have customers. Like nobody's mm-hmm. going to trust us. Nobody's going to believe in us. There's not going to be word yeah. of mouth advertising. There's no business. So yeah. like all the things that like poker trainers, course creators, private private coaches do, find somebody that you believe in, that you trust, and then just let go and just yeah. do what they say, start executing, and you would be amazed at the results that you will have. I definitely think that it's too point though because if you don't go in eyes wide open it's pretty easy to find coaches and products and things that just aren't very good and on top of that aren't really are like going to help you up to a point and then you need to be able to move on once you feel as though it's really helped you a lot like great example is for like lpp like we qualify ourselves as the best value content out there. Um, and I will stand by that, that we are for sure. 
the thing that we aren't though is we aren't the highest level out there. There are other products out there, while some of them are very expensive, they have quote unquote higher level of overall content than us. That's definitely true. Um, you might have to spend a lot more money, but you will definitely find it. I can help you to a point, and I'm very confident I can get you to that point. Beyond that, it's a lot on you or finding other things. And I think uh, certain coaches and certain products aren't open about that either. And that that's kind of why, as a student, if you're trying to find good quality content, while yes, you need to trust the process, especially from someone that does have you know good content, good products, and is proven results for the games you are trying to beat. Once you get to the point of that, and you kind of also just have to be willing to find the point of where you do have those questions and do have those things. It's about finding the balance between it. And it, it boils down to trust, right? Like it, yeah. like a good coach will recognize when they cannot help you or when yep. you should seek out something more complex, more advanced Definitely. that will do you good. So like, like you know, and you said some some course course creators, coaches in the poker space maybe are unwilling to do that. And I would just say, like, find somebody else that cares about you and has your best interest in mind, right? Those are not the people that are worthy of trust. Um, yeah. Effectively, to distill it all down, find somebody that is worthy of trust, that you trust, and then start from there. And yeah, trust that they have your best interest in mind. And then good things happen. And yeah, that that's reality. Like, you know, yeah. some of my guys, I I do have concerns that, you know, maybe they will reach a point to where they outgrow my coaching, right? That that's a thing that could happen. Although I don't know. So well, here's what's interesting about poker coaching, just like private coaching specifically, mm -hmm. is I used to be a little intimidated about getting students that played high stakes because i'd be mm -hmm. like mm, what if i'm not able to teach them a ton of stuff like what if i don't find the holes what if we don't plug many leaks mm -hmm. and then one day i just realized like brad ultimately the less leaks that you find in players that are playing high stakes um like you're supposed to find fewer leaks first of all and then mm -hmm. secondarily the leaks that you do find pay for themselves almost instantly yeah, the price of the the private coaching session itself. So, like, you know, there's ultimately a lot more value for guys that are playing higher stakes in private coaching and buying courses, just mm -hmm. because one change when you're playing two K and L is going to make you, you know, thousands and thousands and yeah. thousands of dollars. That'll pay like, for itself pretty quickly. Yeah, very very quickly. So, yeah, I mean, it's private coaching is interesting, but again, I think just in the space, it boils down to trust. If you trust somebody. Believe that they will have your best interest in mind and then kind of go from there and, you know, even ask other customers, right? Like ask other people that they do private that coaching with. with. Yeah. yeah. What, one of my current students right now asked me straight away. He's like, Brad, can, can you direct me to people who you've coached for a long period of time or maybe even somebody that didn't have a great experience with your coaching? So I just gave him my list of the people that I work with and said, mm -hmm. here, have a ball. You know, like uh, go ask them and get their feedback because like, if it's not good, then don't invest yeah. in my coaching. Right. Like I, I'm, I, I'm confident enough to be transparent that like, I'm pretty sure that it, they're going to get good feedback, but I want them to be able to ask those questions. And if a coach is not willing to allow you to ask those questions, that's, mm -hmm. that's probably a red flag, um, just in yeah. itself.
Definitely. So I just want to, I guess, I feel as though we're coming to like a pretty good wrap up point. Yeah. It feels like we've covered a lot of different topics and stuff. I guess I just wanted to summarize things pretty succinctly. A, poker is really difficult. Life's really difficult, but poker especially is very, very, very difficult. And the best advice I can give about anyone who's in the hunt like me, chasing poker greatness, that you just need to be willing to fail a lot and you just need to accept that things are just going to be very, very, very tough. And that surrounding yourselves with people that you trust, like, and respect that are on that same type of grind is going to be the absolute best thing that you can possibly do. And that being disciplined, both in terms of what you play, how you go about playing, what you study, how you study, and how you manage your money, as well as time and effort, that those, those few things are by far the most and that even me now, after you know, 12 years of doing this for a living, I still struggle. I mean, I'm in the worst downswing I've ever been in. And while maybe I can point to like parts of it being, you know, it's a tough year, and there's all this other stuff that went on personally for me as well, um, both with family and everything else. It's just that it's just it's tough. And like I know that even though I'm going through this like tough grind, and that it will be difficult. I also have hope that things will improve and that I'll just keep working at it. And defining your success based off of having some certain thing you achieve, whether winning a bracelet or some amount of money that you're making, that doing it like that can be an easy way to really be A, beat yourself up, but B, also make things just worse for like to me, the way that I'm now trying my best to define my success as is just doing well and right by the people that I surround myself with and just working hard in terms of making my companies better and making my game better and putting in results. And yeah, it's uh, control the controllables. And yep. that's all you can do. You can control who you surround yourself with. You can control the decisions you make. You can control how you think about the game, how you meditate on the game, how you study the game, and how you play the game. You can't control the results, and that's just okay. We have to accept that in, in this world. We just have to accept that and, and just bear down, control the controllables. And so with that said, you know we will wrap up, and I'll ask you – What's a project that you're working on right now that's near and dear to your heart? Range Trainer Pro. It's not, so I have a piece of it, but really this thing is the baby of High Hands 89, uh, Kenneth Cleeton, and um, his business partner and the head developer uh, programmer, uh, Matt McElligot, um, Matt Mid3 on Twitter. Um, it's really going to have a pretty big impact on how people study um, We've solved a lot of issues that a lot of other post-flop products have. Um, and it's because we've solved those problems, it's going to be much easier for us to build out a much more in-depth and robust product. And we're going to be steadily adding tons and tons and tons and tons of features. We're really doing, really, they're doing their best to turn it into a product that someone can go to and work on their ICM, work on 
you name it, they'll be able to really work on it as far as tournament stuff goes um, and cash games and everything else as well, um, eventually also. And they're doing their best to make it affordable because KL being someone that is very disabled, you know, he does everything with his mouth. Um, he's honestly one of the most hardworking, good people I've ever met in my life. Um, and he's someone that I trust and respect a lot. And having the struggles and stuff that he's had, to him, one of the things he cares the most about is just making high-level poker knowledge and training just accessible. And that's what that product is trying to achieve, but definitely will achieve. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm really excited for us to have a launch product. Um, I, I, a, I just want to play around a lot with it because the products that I've been using, I'm not really that thrilled with. And we're solving all the issues that I really dislike about things. So I just really look forward to just working with it myself and using it to study. But I just think that he's going to have a really big impact on the industry. And I really look forward to, to seeing it for sure. Yeah. If anyone's chasing poker greatness and is going to achieve it, it's definitely him. Yeah. KL is one of my favorite humans and, you know, just, I love KL to death and wish him nothing but the greatest of successes. And, um, final question, man, where can the chasing poker greatness audience find you Ryan LaPlante on the World Wide web? Find me on Twitter at poker or sorry, at potential MN dot or sorry. <laughs> Jesus, that was really bad. Fuck. <laughs> at potential MN. Like I said, sometimes you just fail and fail really hard and that's okay. So yeah. at, Rotential, P-R-O-T-E-N-T-I-A-L-M-N, as in Minnesota. And the reason why you want to follow me on there is because when I play live, I do all these different uh, hand quizzes and stuff, as well as do giveaways for LPP, RTP, you name it. So definitely a lot of value to be had on there that is entirely free. So give me a follow, and uh, I'll actually post some hands today. Me today. For you, it would probably have been a week. It's going to be a while, actually. We've had a we we've had a lot of guests, and and it'll be like a couple, couple of months couple of months, actually. Well, then look forward to my Twitter for the end of the year because I'll post tons of hands and stuff through WSOP. You want some live hands? I got you. Absolutely, and um, good good job on butchering your Jeez, on, online screen name for <laughs> over, over a decade. Uh, the click through, the click through will be on the show page to learn more about Ryan. Thank you very much for your time and your energy, man. I always appreciate it. Thanks everybody. Thank you very much, Brad. Thanks for having me on. And for those that, you know, sat through an hour of this, really appreciate it. Let's look at the tables, everybody stay healthy and Brad, thank you very much for having me on. Peace out. See ya. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.